Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you please turn with me again to the book of 1 Corinthians in the 6th chapter, and let's read from verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Well, I wonder if you happen to read a note that was written by our Prime Minister this week, just two days ago. From what I understand, he posted this on his Facebook account. So this is the words of Prime Minister Trudeau. As of today, it's official. Conversion therapy is banned in Canada. Our government's legislation has come into force, which means it is now illegal to promote, advertise, benefit from, or subject someone to this hateful and harmful practice anywhere in our country. To the survivors who bravely shared their stories, the advocates who kept pushing forward, and the parliamentarians who worked together to pass this important legislation, thank you. And to the LGBTQ2 Canadians, our government will always stand with you and will keep working hard to make sure you feel safe and welcome no matter who you love or how you identify. Now, it's important to get some things uh, clear from what is being said there. It's, of course, referring to Bill C-4, and the amendment to the criminal code which resulted from that. And the parliamentarians he is uh, thanking would be uh, those of all political parties. So the New Democratic Party and the Conservative Party, they also supported this legislation. And indeed, there wasn't one member of parliament from any party who voiced so much as a word of opposition when this passed through unanimously. And when we, we hear things like conversion therapy, it might um, warrant a question, well, what is it that this is really referring to? And it could be, for example, that this is uh, banning things like torture. So if you would just hear what the prime minister is saying, you might think, well, this is about people who may be kidnapping people or coercing them or... Um, hooking up electrodes to their scalp or, or something like this. So, in other words, things that are already illegal through various provisions of the criminal code. But it's, it's worthwhile to note exactly how the criminal code, as of this week, now defines this illegal practice of conversion therapy. So let me quote from what is now the law of our land. 
Conversion therapy means a practice, treatment, or a service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. So a lot can be said there, but it's important to note that uh, one of the implications of the definition here is that any activity or practice, treatment, or service which was have the design of either reducing homosexual behavior or attraction or seeking to bring people into line with uh, heterosexual practice, in other words, a man attracted for a woman in the context of marriage, for example, that that is now illegal in our country and was supported by all members of parliament and senators. And uh, I've said this before, but I think it bears mentioning in the preamble of Bill C-4, it specifically identifies the Bible as a myth. So uh, this is from the preamble, where it refers to um, conversion therapy as based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender uh, identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. So as I've um, communicated to each one that I, I could, who um, I thought needed to know about this, it's important to recognize that our government has committed high blasphemy. That indeed it has um, aligned itself with a radical agenda that is deeply offensive to God because it calls the law of God a myth. And so the, the question becomes, well, what are we to make of this? There, there'd be many um, people who might say that, well, perhaps we can continue to do the right uh, thing. We can still continue to minister uh, the biblical teaching to people who uh, have homosexual urges and, and behavior, but we need to be more subdued about it. We need to be very um, minimizing the amount of opportunities that we can get into trouble. And I'll just uh, tell you right up front, that will not be my approach as your minister. I'm not someone, and I hope you'll, you'll take note of my preaching over the long term, I'm not someone who desires to get on hobby horses. But I also think that there are times in which you do have to speak clearly about the biblical truths that are specifically under attack from our uh, surrounding culture and especially from the state. 
And so I thought that it would be good today to look at what the Bible teaches about this. And uh, since uh, the Prime Minister and the official opposition in all of our political establishment has made conversion a point which is particularly at issue, and they would say that it's any therapy that would bring about a conversion or a great change among someone who has uh, these sexual uh, behaviors. I'd like to especially focus upon that with you for our afternoon message. And I'd like to consider the conversion of homosexuals. The conversion of homosexuals. And we will be considering that from the passage which we read here in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, uh, verses 9 to 11. And I'd like to look at three things that we see from these verses. First, the need for their conversion. And second, the reality of their conversion. And third, the opposition to their conversion. Well, I think that if someone was unclear about the teaching of the Bible, about homosexuality, they would, um, they would not have to go much further than the writings of Paul. There are many places that one could go, but the teaching of Paul and his role as the apostle to the Gentiles is one that is particularly important in this regard. Paul was extremely clear that there needed to be conversion among homosexuals. He was extremely clear that this was something that was not only possible, but very necessary. And for that, you need to look no further than what we read there in verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of mankind shall inherit the kingdom of God. If you read to the end of verse 10. So, obviously, there's many uh, sins listed here. And as you know, as Reformed churches, we preach regularly through all the Ten Commandments as part of our... um, our catechetical instruction. And so each one of these sins that Paul lists would indeed be preached from this pulpit, and I hope without reservation. But I'd like to draw your attention not to uh, some of these other sins that we see, like idolatry, a wicked sin, or adultery, again, a wicked sin, but especially to the last two things that are listed here, um, effeminate and abusers with mankind. Now, you ought to understand, congregation, that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, is referring to those who engage in the sin of homosexuality. This is something that is very clear, that homosexuality is regarded by Paul here as a very serious sin, and he's spoken about in a very clear fashion. So I ordinarily don't regard uh, getting into the Greek language and the specific words used as especially good sermon material, but 
For the purposes of today, I think we'll have a little bit of a, of a Greek lesson. So abusers of themselves of mankind. And what you need to understand is that that is just one word in the Greek, arsenokoites. Arsenokoites. So that is just a compound word, and you could translate it uh, very literally, man better, or man liar, or one who lies down with mankind. And it's not a word that you find really in the Greek literature of other people writing in the days of Paul, apart from one particular place. You would find this word used in the Greek translation of the Bible. You would find it in what's called the Greek Septuagint, which was translated years before Christ was born and the apostles were commissioned. And in particular, you would find it in the book of Leviticus, which we read together. So you'll notice that I read through a section of Leviticus 18. And in Leviticus 18, verse 22, you have this statement from, um, from the word of God. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. And you'll recall that in Leviticus 18, it speaks about other sexual sins as well. It speaks about the sins like incest. speaks about sins like bestiality. Very disturbing, very great sins. And here, as was understood by all interpreters among the Jewish people from the day of Paul and afterward, um, this is referring to any form of romantic or intimate or sexual relations between members of the same sex, in particular men. And so if you would consult with people like Philo, who are writing approximately the same time as Paul, that is how they interpreted uh, that portion of Leviticus. And that is what Paul is referring to here. But what about this other word that he uses? So you notice he, he spoke of um, those who lie with mankind or those who abuse themselves with mankind. But the one before that refers, um, in our translation, to effeminate. And that's actually a pretty good translation. In the Greek, it, it is malakoi, malakoi. And yeah, that, that's a good, the idea is a, a man who plays the part of a woman. Or in the context, the idea is a man who plays the part of a woman in order to attract another man. And so in the nature of these uh, things in a homosexual relationship, there is the man, as it were, and the one who plays the part of the woman. Both are identified by Paul in this passage. And there is some discussion. Is it possible that effeminacy in the broad sense, in other words, a man who is not masculine and is not living according to his uh, des designed role and character, is that... Is that really a more broad principle at work? It could be, but in its relation to the word that comes after, I would generally side with those who say, no, it's referring specifically to effeminacy 
in the context of a homosexual relationship. And the, the word um, malakoi, the, the one that translated uh, those who lie with mankind, that is used elsewhere in Paul's corpus as well. It is used in 1 Timothy 10, and is specifically referred to as something which is contrary to the law of God. And Paul, as you uh, heard from um, Romans chapter 1, also refers to this as it relates to um, to women who would be in, in such a relationship. He spoke about that in Romans chapter 1 and verse 26. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And after he gets into other sins, he summarizes all those sins in Romans chapter 1, but including the sins of homosexuality between two women or between two men in this way, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Now here, uh, Paul is speaking um, in such a way as not to be misunderstood by anyone who has uh, any intellectual honesty. It is, he is speaking here about not only the very act of, of sexual relations, but also the affections and the lusts that give rise to them. The desire for them is also a great sin. And they are sins that, he says, are worthy of death. He's very unmistakable about it, but I think that our text is even more clear. It's not just that it is a great sin and a sin worthy of death at that, but as well, you can see that it is also a sin which keeps those who practice it from heaven. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on. Effeminate, abusers of themselves of mankind, such shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So, Paul is saying these things are condemned by God's law. They profane his holy commandment as it concerns the purity of sexual relations between one man and one woman within the context of marriage. Such things are so offensive to God, as indeed all sin is, but so offensive unto God that such as these will not inherit heaven. They will not enter his presence, but instead they will be cast away into that place of fire and wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
This is the message of the scripture congregation. It's extremely clear it is in black and white. Homosexuality is a very great sin. It is something which is evil. And if our nation doesn't accept that, if our government doesn't accept that, even if many who profess to be Christians do not accept that, it does not change what God says on the matter. God never changes, and his law never changes. There is, as we can say, the need for conversion, the need for some change if those in such sins would inherit the kingdom of heaven. And praise be to God. It's not just a passage about that. Not just a passage about their need for conversion, but as well, it speaks about the reality of their conversion. He says in verse 11, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. Can you imagine that? Like, here is that church in Corinth, a city in Greece, full of former Gentiles, pagans, those who were caught up in the ways of the world. Look at all the different sins listed there. Adultery, idolatry, thieves, covetous, all these, all these things. And also those who had engaged in the sin of homosexuality. Also those who had engaged in that lifestyle, those activities, who had had those hearts that were burning for members of the same sex. And what... Do we see there, such were some of you. Not are some of you, such were some of you. A change has happened. And it's that change of conversion. A true Christian church will never be ashamed of conversion. Never cease preaching that message that ye must be born again. That a change must take place among every sinner, but as well those who are in the sin of homosexuality. Let's notice in the first place that this is referring in such a glorious way to the author of this conversion. The author of this conversion is not some human technique. Indeed, there is something to be said for some forms of uh, psychology, some forms of therapy. Sometimes that can help a little with some things. If you're oversleeping, I'll go to someone and they'll tell you, here are some things you can do so you're not oversleeping and you're not sleeping through your alarm or whatever. There are things we can modify behavior with. But when it comes to the spiritual bondage to sin, we're dealing with something rather different than that. I certainly would never counsel anyone if they are engaged in such sins, if they are tempted towards such sins, whether these kinds of sexual sins, other kinds of sexual sins, no matter what sin may be enslaving you today, I tell you, don't go to the solutions of the world. Don't go to the different therapists and, and techniques and, and solutions they have to offer. I can tell you what will actually make a difference. Go to the one who converted these Corinthians 2,000 years ago. 
such that it was able to say, such were some of you. Go unto the triune God. God the Father is referred to in this passage, isn't he? It's referred to as the kingdom of God. And later on it refers to the spirit of our God. It's referring to God the Father, as Paul is, is prone to do. He reserves this name, God, especially for the Father, as is his normal way of, of speaking. So it is. Take some of those people in that church in Corinth, some of those who had been engaged in this lifestyle, engaged in these activities. God the Father set his love upon them. From eternity, he elected them unto everlasting life. But not only that, consider God the Son. God the Son. It refers to the name of the Lord Jesus. There in verse 11, Jesus. He is the one who really didn't enter into any of these discussions taking place in Parliament and even in some of the subsequent discussion. So little has been said about the claims of Jesus. This one who suffered and died upon Calvary's cross, who shed his blood for sinners. How much thought has been given to this fact that Christ died for homosexuals. Christ died for homosexuals in that church. They were there. They were part of the communion of the saints. They were there. And they were there because Christ died for them. He loved them and he endured all the wrath of God for them. And he suffered in order to pay for the sins of homosexuality. Also upon the cross of Calvary. But as well, there's God, the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God indwelled these homosexuals, brought them from death unto life. It's this that we must understand, congregation. It takes God to really bring someone to the point where they are an heir of eternal life in the kingdom of God. So it is also with with our text. It's held forth very plainly, but not only the author of their conversion, but also the glorious blessings of their conversion. And really, there's three things uh, mentioned here, but let's consider this in the first place. Ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Justified. God pronounces these righteous. How is it that those who have committed sins that are worthy of death, how is it they go on another day? Well, often it's by suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Just going to people who say, oh, these things aren't so serious. These things aren't worthy of death. These things aren't worthy of hell. No, no, I'll, I'll find uh, someone who will tell me what I want to hear. And so it is with so many. But the message of the gospel is is far other than that. Any sinner, including those who engaged in such sins, they come to the gospel and the gospel doesn't say, no, you're, you're not a sinner. But it says there is righteousness for those who are sinners. Consider what the same author wrote in the book of Romans, 
chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ can deal with this sin of homosexuality. Let us not doubt it for an instant. There is grace sufficient for the chief of sinners, and so we should not count anyone as far removed from the orbit of the gospel when it comes to those offers of grace and salvation in Jesus Christ, even those that deal with the guilt of sin. But what of the pollution of sin? What of that enslaving power? Shall we say that it's all well if someone would say, very well, I believe upon the Lord Jesus. I receive this gift of justification by faith. And then they would say, well, it's all, it's all well. It shall go on. No, it's conjoined rather with this other grace that's spoken of here. Not only that of justification, but it says as well in verse 11, ye are sanctified. Sanctified. Not only a change in relation to the law of God, such that the righteousness of Christ is imputed unto them, and they are regarded as righteous before the throne of God, but also this, an actual change in the heart and in the life. They are actually liberated from the enslaving power of their sin. And this is rather uh, what is especially dangerous in our own context to speak about, that which indeed our leaders say is illegal. You cannot say that there is any hope for one who has such a so-called sexual orientation. Isn't it so shocking how these unscientific, unproven uh, theories have gained almost the aura and authority of Scripture itself. Even Christians would, would dare to say, well, okay, I can accept there's forgiveness, but certainly not change. Certainly this is something to do with biology. It's in their very DNA. Nothing will ever change that. They'll labor and on and on under these urges, and there's nothing whatsoever that can be done about it. And it's indeed cruel and harsh to even suggest that such a change is necessary. But what do we say? It says here in the scripture, ye are sanctified. There is a change in the affections, a change in the desires, a change in the life. Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. By they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. By they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. For those who are united unto Jesus Christ, and as it says, are renewed by the spirit of God. We are dealing with a divine power here. Yes, there is indwelling sin, and so it ought not to be regarded as something which is incompatible with Christianity if there are indwelling 
um, sins in that way. If there is an actual fight against sin so that you hate your sin, so that you war against it, you seek to put it to death, you seek to suppress it, and you regard it as vile and heinous before the sight of God. Such a one, dearly beloved, if, if you would hear this, do not be one who would say, well, there is no hope for me because the change is not perfect. No. Where did that desire come from to put this sin to death? Well, surely, dear believer, it came from the Holy Spirit of God. And shall you put any barriers or limits on what God can do? Shall not that change which begun, can it not continue? And shall we not say that as we as there are those who have been liberated from these desires, as these Corinthians were, so also God can do the same also today. There's a third thing that is mentioned here uh, by the apostle, not only justified and sanctified, but ye are washed. Ye are washed. And there's some controversy about how exactly to take that. And... I will say that I do side with the minority here. A minority of Reformed expositors would say this is referring to the sacrament of baptism. And I, um, I'm not alone in arguing that, but I think it's rather plain that baptism surfaces quite often in this epistle to um, the Corinthians in the, the first epistle. And it makes very natural sense, it seems to me, that he would refer to the blessed sacrament at this time. He says it uh, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. The baptism of the church is really a leveling thing. There's not one baptism that is more or less than another. Each one is a visible sign and seal of the gospel. It testifies of that washing away, both of the guilt of sin and justification, and the power and pollution of sin through sanctification. It is testifying to the power of God and what he can do among his chosen ones. And it holds forth a deliverance from both the power and the guilt of sin unto all those who would trust in the name of Jesus Christ with true faith. It is the same baptism which unites us all, all in this room, and all true Christians. Whatever your denomination, even whatever the mode of baptism, where there is washing, of water and where there is the name of the triune God pronounced, there is that visible gospel. And is it not a visible testimony that no matter who you are, if you are here today and perhaps you are engaged in or you have engaged in the sin of homosexuality, consider your baptism, Christian. Your baptism is not testifying that you are clean in yourself. It is testifying of one who can wash you. And all praise be unto God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are washed. You are washed. That is 
what we see here. And shall we despise anyone who joins us in that sacred water? Shall we despise any of our little ones if they should grow of age and come to us and say, we have these desires, we have these urges? No. We would not come to them with a harsh and, a, and an angry tone. What we would say to them is, this is so serious. But I love you. And let me tell you about a Savior who can help. Let me tell you of where you can take those things. You can take them to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And shall we despise one who comes to us from the world and says, I have lived this life and I've done these things and we, we, no, we shall not despise these. No, because that very same baptism, it is that which embraces all sinners. There's not a single person who marches in a gay pride parade here in London, Ontario, who can brightly and truly exclude themselves from the promises of this gospel. They are like unto these sinners who were saved in Corinth and have been saved from generation unto generation. And while they may indeed regard us as dangerous and evil people for holding these things forth, the reality is that we continue to speak of them because we have hearts of love also for their salvation. And we will not cease speaking of the conversion of homosexuals. It is a reality. And were there no other evidence in the whole universe that a homosexual could be saved, and there is much evidence, if you would care to look, I would say this very evidence in the sacred scriptures is enough for me. So I'll never deny it, and I'll never stop speaking of it, even if I'm thrown in jail for it. But in the third and last place congregation, I think we ought to speak as well of the opposition to their conversion. And that's perhaps not so directly in our text, but it is in our world today. So perhaps we should say a word about this. Where God has said that homosexuals need to be converted and where indeed they are being converted and shall be converted, what shall we say to the activities of the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party and the New Democratic Party and all the elected officials in those parties who have brought this upon our land? What shall we say about them and all those who support them? Well, I think that the first thing that ought to be said is that they are engaged in something that is extremely wicked, extremely evil, something about which God's wrath is particularly kindled against. And as I was thinking about this, I was drawn to the words of the Lord Jesus as he speaks of, um, of the Pharisees and the scribes of his own day in Matthew 23 and verse 13. This is what the uh, the Lord Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. So I think 
Jesus is not saying those who don't go into the kingdom themselves are without excuse, but his anger is especially kindled about those who would shut up others. His anger is kindled against also modern Pharisees who, draping themselves in the robes of self-righteousness, would say, I don't care if there's a little girl or a little boy who has these desires. I will shut them up to this one solution. Embrace your sin. Live in your sin and die in your sin. And if anyone, whether a father or a mother or a pastor or a counselor or a friend, comes to you with this message of 1 Corinthians, then that's just not allowed anymore because I suppose it's the year 2022 and we need to get with the times. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ doesn't get with the times. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus Christ is very displeased with our leaders and with all who would support this evil, wicked agenda. And because of that, we ought to expect judgment. We ought to expect terrible judgment, the likes of which this nation has not known. Oh, do you think that the last years have been hard? Do you think that bad things have happened to our country? Oh, do you know what may happen? Do you have any idea what will befall a land after they have so through their representatives, shaken their fist at the king of heaven and declared that sinners shall be kept out of Christ's salvation. What shall befall our land? Well, I'm reminded of what Christ said elsewhere in that chapter, Matthew 23 and verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee how often would i have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings and ye would not now i think that passage it's important because it's often misquoted it's often misquoted so often it's quoted as how often would i have gathered you jerusalem you, the city of Jerusalem, but I couldn't. Why? Because you wouldn't. No, that's not what he says. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her wings, her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. He's speaking about the religious leaders of Jerusalem, those who have positions of power, even those who oppose the Lord Jesus with all their might. And what did, did Jesus say? Well, you are opposing me, gathering your children, your children unto myself. And they opposed it by the killing of prophets. Striking thing that. They were known as a city that had killed many prophets. They killed the chief prophet, the Lord Jesus. And so it also in our own situation. But what? What should we expect as the state of Canada 
has designs upon persecuting faithful Christians who stand for the gospel. Well, remember what happened to that city of Jerusalem. God indeed did gather those children unto Jesus Christ. He did save a remnant according to the election of grace, each one whom Christ set his eternal love upon. It was not their opposition to Christ that restrained the advance of his kingdom, but it did bring down judgment. As in 70 AD, that whole nation was brought unto fire and the sword, and it was, it was never raised up as it was before. Judgment is coming, congregation, upon our wicked nation for their evil defiance and their blasphemous hatred against both the law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I tell you, we must plan our lives accordingly. We must be faithful unto death, and we must resolve to never depart from the truth. And if this whole nation is visited by judgments, the likes of which we've never seen, let us not be surprised. Let us mourn, let us grieve, but let us see also the righteous judgment of God. I'd like to leave you with this uh, final word from Romans chapter 12 and verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How shall we overcome the evil of this law and the various people who would hold those in homosexual sin into bondage? those who would eventually, not tomorrow, not this afternoon, but eventually come into buildings like this and say such sermons are no longer allowed in the land of Canada. Well, we will overcome evil with good. We will not give in turn, yes. We hate with all of our hearts the devil, and we hate with all of our hearts sin, we hate all of, with all of our hearts injustice and unrighteousness, but that does not take away the fact that our text says such were some of you. There is not one enemy of God or of Christ or of the church who is outside of the grace of God. Even this Paul could speak of the day when he himself raged against the church and led people away into bonds. The Prime Minister of Canada would listen to this sermon. I would say one thing, repent. Repent of your sin. Believe upon Jesus Christ. Cease your wicked rebellion. Even you can be saved, Prime Minister. And if you do not, then there is also this for you. You yourself will not inherit the kingdom of God. Amen. Let us pray. Glorious King of heaven, we call upon your name. Help us, we pray, in this hour of darkness to be the children of light. I pray, Lord, for each person here, each person who may be listening in, if someone would be in the sound of my voice and say, that is me, and 
May it please you, O Lord, according to your marvelous grace, to seal your gospel unto their souls, to hold forth all that Christ is, all Christ has done, all Christ shall do unto them, such that they would indeed be converted unto you, that they indeed would set aside the works of darkness and embrace what is true righteousness and holiness. May it please you, O God, to give your church faithfulness unto death, that we would desire with steel resolve to continue to proclaim your saving message, no matter the cost. And may it please you that you would not give us over to bitterness, nor self-righteousness, nor pride, nor Phariseeism of any kind. Help us to see, Lord, that we are those who need a Savior as well, and that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, but there is now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. May you be pleased, O Lord Jesus, to magnify your great name also by saving our wicked nation from itself. Will you be pleased, we pray, to grant repentance unto Prime Minister Trudeau that he may not perish but live together with leader of the opposition, Aaron O'Toole, and all the other politicians who are wicked enemies of your cause. May it please you also this day to uh, go with us for the remainder of this week. We know, Lord, that there are many challenges, many cares, and it could be that there'd be some who would say, this had nothing to say to me. But it's most needful, Lord, that we would hold fast to the whole counsel of God. Help us, Lord, to treasure every word that proceeds out of your mouth and to live in the light of it. We pray it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.